Welcome to Grumpy Strategist Episode 7. I'm your host, Michael Shoebridge, and I have with me Dr. Marcus Hellyer, Head of Research at Strategic Analysis Australia. Dr. Hellyer, great to see you over there. It's great to be here, Michael. And welcome back from Indo-Pacific 2023, the extravaganza of all things naval and maritime technology. I had an awesome time there, and we can talk about it later in the podcast. And we will. So I thought we could cover a few things. The Pacific Agreement between Australia and Tuvalu, so some good news to start with. Then all things Indo-Pac and naval, maybe... Then talk about more naval stuff, the Hunter Frigate internal review that Secretary Greg Moriarty uh, has given a summary of to to the Parliament and some of the extraordinary things in that. And if there's time, a quick chat about the B-21 at the end. There's always time to talk about the B-21. Maybe there's even the right time to acquire that. But anyway, let's start with the good news. So Tuvalu, at the end of Mr Albanese's recent world tour, which I found quite depressing and disconnected, there was some very good, important news, and that was the agreement between Tuvalu and Australia that says the population of Tuvalu will have access to the Australian economy through visas. Uh, This is driven by climate change because they're likely to go underwater. But it really is extending the kind of arrangement that Australia and New Zealand have had so successfully, closer economic relations since 1983, to a small Pacific state. And it looks to me like a model for a very different way of relating with the South Pacific. Yeah, uh, if you're Tuvalu, it's kind of a, a mixed bag. I mean, the bottom line is your island is disappearing underwater due to climate change. And despite lots of good words from the, the major economies of the world, uh, nothing has really changed there. So they're still sinking. So that's the bad news. I guess the good news is they have somewhere to go to. If you want to move to Australia, that's now uh, an option. So So probably a good outcome considering a lot of bad options facing them. Well, you're Uh, right. I mean, one one thing about this is this is something that Australia and New Zealand should be doing with our South Pacific partners without climate change, meaning that some of them are going underwater, and without the push of an aggressive security actor called China into the region. I think it's taken both of those things to make Australia and New Zealand do this. But the real benefit is proper economic connections between the South Pacific populations and the Australian and New Zealand economies. We've got enormous workforce gaps in aged care, in health and education. We can't get the people to do those jobs. And the South Pacific is aid-dependent. Why not meet both our needs? Yeah, uh, my sense is it's a sign of things to come. I mean, it's been happening already, so there's a number of uh, work visa programs already uh, in existence to allow Pacific Island people to come and work in Australia, at least temporarily. I think there's going to be more of that, partly because of climate change issues, partly because of the, the China issue. So we'll see more of it. I think the the big uh, question will be, what happens when we get to PNG? It's, yeah. it's one thing to take the sort of 12,000 citizens of Tuvalu, but there are, pick a number, 12, 15, 17 million people in PNG. And, and so I think there are some, some limits to how far this will go. Yeah, I agree. I think the model works pretty much for the entire South Pacific besides the French territories and PNG, 
without there being some much larger societal and political consequences for all concerned. Mm -hmm. But the other obvious thing is Tuvalu, it's got under 12,000 people. Will other small states now want to join? And key ones are Vanuatu and, of course, the Solomons. Well, Australia's migrant intake at the moment is between 200 and 300,000 people a year, so it can accommodate South Pacific Islands, I think. Mm. And in human capital terms, it's a very positive thing because Australia needs exactly the kind of people mm-hmm. that live in the South Pacific. I don't think they're all going to want to live in Australia, but I think... A bunch of them will earn a living and they will make their home societies much more prosperous. Wash your mouth out, Michael. Surely surely you're not saying Australia is not the most desirable place in the world to live in. Well, let's move on now to Indo-Pacific, which brought a whole lot of visitors to town. So one thing that struck me from a distance was if plastic ship models were capability... Our Navy and our allies and partners' navies would be in great shape. There were some wonderfully powerful plastic display models there for people to see. Yes. Well, first up, I will declare an interest because I was at Indopac, but I was there with my other hat on. So I have a strategic advisor position for a fantastic Melbourne company called C2 Robotics, which makes an amazing long-range uncrewed underwater vessel. So I was there in that capacity, so I'll just... Get that well, actually, an interesting thing about that is the spear tooth is about the size of some of these plastic major surface <laughs> combatant models, but it's to scale. It's a one-to-one representation. Well, it's it's eight meters long, so it's it's well small compared to a crewed submarine, but quite large as uncrewed underwater vessels go. We can talk about this on a, another mm. another time. But lots of time to to wander around and look at the the plastic displays and um, look marvel at these temporary structures that are put up in the convention center, costing you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. So a lot of money is is going into these conventions. One thing that struck me was there were so many shipbuilders and designers announcing new teaming arrangements and offering solutions for a requirement that the Australian Navy and the Australian government hasn't really said they have yet. So there there are a lot of... Um, There's a lot of reading of the tea leaves going on of what will come out of the surface ship review. So our listeners will recall that out of the DSR, there was a direction to conduct another review into the future shape of our surface fleet. That review was completed by uh, retired US Admiral, Admiral Hillarides, which has gone to the government and kind of just sat there. And the government has said, well, we, we need to digest and maybe around next year's budget, we might tell you what was in it. Mm. Now, the the inner cynic in me is kind of going, right, so probably what Admiral Hillarides said was, if you want to do anything faster than the current plan based on the Hunter-class frigate, it's going to cost more money. And I suspect the government has gone, wrong answer, Ooh. try again. Yes, because I think we've already seen that little shadow puppetry exercise with the strategic review, haven't we? Where we haven't seen what the strategic reviewers actually said about budgets. We've seen the government saying there's no new money for four years and any new money after that looks like it's committed to the AUKUS nuclear submarines. Admiral Hillarides, I think you're right, when he was told, look at the current plan for the Navy's surface combatants and tell us what we should do, he's probably come to the obvious conclusion that getting some ships with some offensive firepower into the fleet fast is a good idea. 
and that isn't the current plan. But think of it from the Treasurer's point of view and the Prime Minister's point of view. Richard Miles, I told you no new money. What have you got this US Admiral telling me you need more money for? Well, the the public information on the Hunter-class frigate program is that it will deliver the first ship sometime in the early 2030s, around 2032, and that ship will be commissioned and enter service sometime around 2034. And that's public information. I'm not inventing that. So we are still a decade away from having any new warships in the Royal Australian Navy, particularly since the Arafura-class OPV is becoming less and less and less capable every time we look at it, so it's hard to call that a warship. And so I'd, the- I'd imagine that Admiral Hillarides may have observed that it's an unarmed vessel and that it's not right for our strategic mm. circumstances. So, so you can imagine so that gets cancelled. The Hunter doesn't deliver anytime soon and doesn't have appreciable offensive firepower unless you're a submarine, there's a gap here, and the gap looks like an up-armed modern version of the Anzac, and that's what well, everybody would seem that, to be proposing at Indopac. That, that seems to be the, the reading of the tea leaves. The problem is, if you cancel a hunter, well, you're starting again from scratch. Okay, so that may be a good thing, and there are advocates of that. If you don't cancel the hunter, if you somehow shrink the program and say, we'll we'll cut the back end of it. So it's meant to be getting nine ships, we'll only get six. Well, that doesn't save you any money for probably another 15 to 20 years. It does nothing to help you now. So if you cut the front end of the Hunter program, well, then delivery of the first ship would move from 2032 to sometime in the late 2030s, 2038 maybe. But the program's not going to last. You're not going to be able to have workers sitting around for another six or seven years twiddling their thumb until it's time to start. So you either have to cancel it completely or keep going with it completely. If you keep going with it completely, there's no money for all of these alternatives. The, well, this proliferation of light frigate designs and corvette designs that we saw in numbers at Indopac. Well, you get a little bit of money from the OPV, but of course a lot of the startup costs for the OPV will ha- already have been spent and you're only going to get recover build costs of the later vessels. So there's that. But isn't there... A- a dumber way that the government can move forward, which they just did with Land 400, the big army program. So that, just like the Hunter, really slow, probably wrong for our capability needs, the ghost of Christmas past as a capability, mega project, 450. What did they do? They cut it in thirds and we're getting 129, which has all of those downsides you just talked about. You have to do the big upfront spend, no matter if you get 129 or 450 of them. You don't open any options to do anything differently on funding in the near term because of that. And then probably your cost per item goes up because you're getting a smaller number. So you could do that with the hunter. You could, that, the government's dumbest option is to do that, and its second dumbest option is to pretend the plan's great and just proceed. Yeah, well, I have, I have a bit of a feeling we're going to go with option two because doing anything else is all too difficult and would, would cost money. But, again, who knows? But, well, don't yeah, so forget. So it's an un- uncertain space, uh, but lots of people are trying to fill it. Don't you know, forget so. one of the plastic display models was BAE's new... I don't know if you can still call it the Hunter or the Type 26. Maybe mm. you've got to call it the... This is the Big Bad Hunter. I think you've got to call it the Gunter because it's actually called <laughs> Weaponry. You know, that was, hey, look, you thought that this thing was unarmed. Well, look, here's a plastic model that has 
96 VLS launch cells. It, it is quite remarkable that virtually overnight, you know, so the criticism from many, many quarters of the Hunter was it's a huge ship, 10,000 tonnes, yet it's only got 32 vertical launch cells. So it's as big as, say, a US Navy destroyer, but it's only got a third of the VLS cells. Well, all of a sudden, now we have this new Hunter design, which has gone from 32 to 96 VLS. So it's quite remarkable, which makes you wonder why why didn't we do that in the first place, but also makes you wonder one of the problems with the Hunter is we've done so many modifications to it already. So new radar, new combat system, new weapons, uh, new helicopter, Australian design standards. That's one of the reasons why the schedule has blown out and the cost has blown out. And now yet one more <laughs> major design. So it does make you think, why stop now just when this is going so badly and I, I did look at some of the stuff being talked about about this 96 missile cell version of, of the Hunter as if it was already floating around operating in some Navy and thought to myself surely to discount the risk to the design and performance from making this further major change nobody could be that unwise So I I just hope that a cold dose of realism is brought to this, which brings me to our... Well, well, let's finish on the Hunter. We'll we'll do the the review. The the internal defence review of the Hunter frigate procurement advice to government and the whole process... A truly remarkable document. So it's published now. It's available on the parliamentary website. Yeah, Um, maybe we can put a link on our website. But the the background to this is that the ANAO, the Australian National Audit Office, did a review of the Hunter uh, selection process and the JCPAA, the Joint Committee Committee on on Public Accounts Accounts and Audit, does a a review of uh, selected ANAO reports. And so they looked at this one. The ANAO had said that There'd been very bad record keeping on the part of defence. They couldn't justify their decision. Well, no, there were thousands, 10,000 documents. It was only the key decision-making <laughs> the, ones and the key advice to government ones that were missing. Mm. Some some remarkable smoking gun ones had gone missing. And also defence had, hadn't made a clear value-for-money case. So a couple of big points. Uh, so the JCPAA looked into this and defence said, oh, yeah, well, we agree with the ANAO. These are, these are fair points. And it went away and did an internal review. The internal review was delivered to the secretary. He's pondered it for a month or so and has now provided a, I guess, a summary version of that review back to the JCPAA and that's available for everybody to, to look at. You know, it strikes me reading this, how many pages have we got? We've got about six pages of it. Six pages plus the terms of reference. The first thing I'd be doing if I was a member of the JCPAA is saying, Secretary Moriarty, thank you very much for your summary. I would like the actual review document in its entirety, please. I think that would be good because what we have here is a, I I don't want to say opaque, but it is written in a language that is not accessible to the average Australian. I think unless you are a career bureaucrat, preferably one who has worked in defence, preferably one who has worked in the shipbuilding space, you're not really going to have much of an idea of what this is actually talking about. In fact, Mm. you can pretty much read this whole thing without actually knowing it's about a shipbuilding decision. Or $45 billion worth of public money. Yes. That said, I think there are some very interesting conclusions here. And I would actually congratulate Secretary Moriarty 
on publishing this because some of the conclusions here are not at all complementary of the administration of the Department of Defence under his leadership. No, and in fact, I think there's some personal responsibility here. So, yes, I too think it's a fine thing that he has actually signed off on this and provided it publicly to the parliament. But this should not be extraordinary to to actually disclose these kinds of things to our parliament. So hopefully it's the start of a new beginning. One thing that really struck me in the summary of this internal review is a statement on page three, advice to government, advice to the then government at second pass. And remind me, I think that was in early 2018. Mm-hmm. When Ad- Secretary Moriarty was, in fact, the Secretary. During Secretary Moriarty's tenure. Advice to the then government at second pass in connection with the conduct of a value for money assessment was poorly executed by defence. Now, that sentence goes to the heart of the administration and management of the Department of Defence because a core responsibility of the Secretary is to provide advice to government and another one is to administer the department in accordance with its legislative obligations and another one is to administer the expenditure of public monies in the department in accordance with policy and legality. So if advice to government at second pass on this $45 billion procurement... Second pass is the actual uh, decision to go forward with to say We have chosen... It's it's the the final decision, the core decision. It's simple, isn't it? This is to choose BAE and its hunter frigate for our Royal Australian Navy. At a cost of $45 billion. If that advice was poor, the single point of accountability for that advice is the position of the Secretary of the Department at that time. So, yes, it's, I think, a brave decision on the part of Secretary Moriarty to to publish this, but maybe he had no choice. But aside from those little details about it doesn't actually make it clear that this is about shipbuilding, unless you can read between the lines, there are right throughout this many, many relatively clear statements about the inadequacy of the process. So, what were a couple of highlights for you, Dr. Hayes? Well, so it says the advice to government was not complete at second pass. With respect to the material outcomes of the process, that being the selection process, about affordability or compliance and risk assessments. So essentially it's saying it didn't give good advice to government on the outcome of the selection process. It didn't give advice to government on the affordability of it, this $45 billion program. And it didn't give good advice to government on risk. These are all the... the, If it didn't give good advice to government on those things, what did it give good advice to government on? And therefore you're forced to conclude that this entire decision, so the choice of the Hunter-class frigate, was based on poor evidence or incomplete evidence. And so, therefore, it's probably not surprising that since 2018, we've had schedule blowouts. We've decided, apparently, it doesn't really give us the capability we want. The department has since said that it, in, in its risk assessment, it now thinks it's the nine ships are unaffordable within the $45 billion budget. Pretty extraordinary. So if you have a bad process, don't follow it. Don't provide good advice to government. Surprise, surprise, these things come back to bite you. Well, you know, there isn't much else in a tender and selection process besides the material outcome, 
the affordability, the compliance with legality and the appreciable understanding and advice around the risks. So it's hard to see what went right about this process rather than see what went wrong. In the words from the head of the department who was the senior accountable official at the time. One other thing that really struck me about it was apparently this internal review spoke to a number of former and maybe currently serving senior defence officials that were involved in the process. And uh, to quote the document, these senior defence officials considered across this period that there was sufficient advice provided to government to allow it to make a value for money assessment. Ah, Although it does remind me of the... Profumo cabinet minister scandal in the UK who was accused of having an affair with a lady of the night and the tabloids went round to her after he denied it and said well he denies having an affair with you what have you got to say to that and she famously said he would say that wouldn't he yes but I I I think what is going on here is that classic issue of basic public service rule number one is put it in writing. And I suspect what was going on here was departmental officials were talking to ministers, but ministers may not have wanted to have that advice put in writing. So advice around risk, perhaps, advice around the extent of modifications that would need to be made to the Hunter class design to uh, meet the government's requirements and the resulting cost schedule and risk implications. I suspect there may have been a kind of tacit sort of agreement here. Don't put that in writing. Well, do you know, though, one of the clear insights from the RoboDebt Royal Commission is just when powerful people don't want you to put something in writing, that is the moment when an official with integrity needs to put something in writing. And they will find out later, to their great cost and mortification, that it is at their expense that they haven't put it in writing. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so very interesting. But, again, lots of, in this uh, review, lots of sort of assumed knowledge here. So, for example, it says officials were conscious that a key program objective from the outset was to ensure that the program could materially contribute to the implementation of the then government's policy to achieve continuous naval shipbuilding in Australia. So what that's really saying is the government was terrified of a valley of death in shipbuilding. Ooh. Everybody knew the Hunter, the Hobart class... Air Warfare Destroyer program was ending. Yep, there'll be and unemployed as, marchers in Adelaide. As we all know, if a single shipbuilder is laid off, it's a national tragedy. So the whole process was about getting something into service quickly. And so that's why, from the outset, the selection criteria were basically about getting a, a mature design, one that was in the water and one that was in service. But none of those things are the case with No, and so that's, again, defence blew up its own process. It had a very clear selection criteria and, and blew them up. And that's why you sort of have lots of statements in here. I'll read this one out. The focus on achieving capability requirements displaced sufficient attention to the risks as well as the consideration of the tenders against other criteria. So what that's really saying is Defence fell in love with a particular capability solution, even though it didn't meet the fundamental requirement of schedule, of getting something into service quickly. So they picked something that looked really good on paper, 
but wasn't a mature capability. Mm. Well, and another, um, you know, we, you really do have to have a, uh, a sort of public service speak translator when you read this, don't you? His shortlisting and downselect processes, paragraph three on page three, the shortlisting process was designed to be logical and demonstrate rigour. Defence departed from the agreed process and this departure led to shortfalls in terms of the extent of reasonable inquiries made to facilitate accountable and transparent decision-making, the level of diligence, fairness and consistency applied during shortlisting and the overall effectiveness of this stage of the procurement. So there was a logical, rigorous process. The only problem is defence didn't follow it. Defence departed from it. So I think... To me, it's actually, if you can actually get through the public service speak, it's actually quite damning of the leadership of the Department of Defence, both in, in the sort of early stages of the selection and down select and also in the second pass stage. It's pretty damning. So, it's uh, you know, it's kudos very... to Secretary Moriarty because he's basically marking his own homework and saying it wasn't very good at all. Well, except none of the lessons learned which are the last bit of the document and what's to be done to to stop it happening again, none of them approached the central issue about the poor quality of advice from the key accountable official at the head of the department and the poor administration of core processes around compliance, Mm. legality and spending money by that same senior official. There really is a personal responsibility trail here And all of the implementation stuff are about better communicating existing responsibilities, reforming the committee system, increasing internal rigour and contestability and improving governance. There's not a shred of personal accountability for any official that was involved in this process that was so deeply flawed. And I'll just point to one last point here. You and I, Michael, we're both old contestability Warriors. I was in contestability for close to nine years, I'd say, and you were there for probably about three years or, mm-hmm. or so. Every time there is a, a disaster or a failure, the reviews say you need to strengthen contestability and defence doesn't do it. And then next time there's another failure and another review and it said you need a stronger independent contestability function and defence doesn't do it. Defence likes having a nice pet contestability function that can point to and say, see, we have one, but it doesn't actually want a contestability function that can truly challenge bad decisions. Well, the the alternative is what I think is starting to happen, which is the parliament reasserting its authority over the executive and over public officials and filling that gap. So this is not the last we've heard of the Hunter decision-making. Now, just quickly, when we're talking about capabilities, I thought there was an extraordinarily positive development out of the US, the B-21 Raider, the new long-range stealth strategic bomber, has flown successfully, and it looks very like they're doing what they said they would do on the box. They said they would do a rapid new design that would rapidly get into service. They wouldn't reinvent everything out of the B-2. They would just improve and evolve. And it looks like it could be a strikingly powerful new long-range weapon. Mm. So B-21, I'm a big fan of the B-21. And in fact, I've written a book on the B-21, sort of suggesting reasons why Australia should consider it. I feel a bit kind of torn because I've always been a strong advocate for the smaller, smart and the many, that we should be pursuing UAVs, uncrewed systems, small things that we can acquire 
and mass. On the other hand, I'm a big sucker for the B21. Now, actually, one of the reasons for that is that they're actually quite complementary and that a system like the B21, because of its stealth, can actually get quite close to the adversary and use a bunch of cheap weapons to prosecute targets rather than sort of million dollar long range standoff weapons. And there's been actually quite a lot of cost analysis done by in the US, but also we did some as part of that earlier study. And, and the bottom line is, is that actually if you're going to be using it in war and which is to launch munitions, it's actually a relatively affordable capability because you're actually transferring a lot of the cost of the munitions to the platform right, itself. Right. Yeah, so you've got a an expensive platform, but it's able to carry and use lots of cheap weapons yeah. rather than you need really expensive weapons like El Razzle to, to kill a ship. And just to remind people, this isn't a strategic bombing campaign of World War II kind of bomber. This can do things like anti-ship rolls. Yeah, so when I look at it, I see it as in a kind of operational sense in that kind of terence by denial role of controlling the air and sea approaches to Australia. Operating as we did in World War II, we did actually have long-range bombers in World War II operating in the South West Pacific. And it was some long-range ground-based bombers that took out Japanese naval ships and aircraft carriers in combination with aircraft carrier-launched fighters. Yeah, so Battle of... They played a role in Battle of Midway, but actually in the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, sort of one of the most successful air operations conducted by Australia and the US in the Southwest Pacific, where they totally annihilated a, a Japanese invasion fleet, was with land-based Ooh. air power. So, yeah, when I look at the B-21, I'm certainly not thinking nuclear weapons, but I'm certainly not thinking we're going to go and drop bombs on, on Beijing. I do see it in a kind of traditional deterrence by denial role in Australia. That said, the DSR was very clear on the B-21. It said, no, nah, we're not interested. Well, when you say it was very clear, it had a f- throwaway line. I wouldn't be surprised if this was writing instructions to that team. That really was the most cursory examination possible. And I think all it did was kind of put a little bit of of a fake moustache on the mannequin. I don't think it does anything. So obviously it's an embarrassment to have the possibility of getting, say, 36 B-21s for about a third of the price of eight nuclear submarines that don't all turn up until the 2050s. And I, I think that is a reason not to have public discussion. But if we could go back in our little time machine two and a bit years to the AUKUS announcement... An AUKUS announcement that had Pillar 1, the B-21s, <laughs> Pillar 2, all the fast-moving digital technologies that we haven't yet seen out of it. You could have put $200 billion into Pillar 2, fast-moving digital technologies, and $168 billion into the B-21s, and Australia would be secure and much more powerful much earlier. Well, I mean, we, we can all do that, that exercise of saying, what would you spend $360 billion on rather than SS? SSNs. My own sense is the kinds of roles that we want SSNs for, in the, in the little bit that the government has actually said of what we want to use SSNs for, I think something like B21 would achieve that for a fraction of the price and sooner. Well, we're out of time, but here's, here's a thought. Uh, if the AUKUS submarines are really what this government wants Australia to have, then it could take some of the decisions it must take now 
like the East Coast base, like where the highly radioactive reactors are going to be stored. If it doesn't want to take those decisions, we haven't turned a sod on this thing yet. And maybe a sensible conversation with our AUKUS partners could at least put these alternatives on the table, because one of them is very real, the B-21. It doesn't involve Australia getting highly enriched uranium reactors and putting them in a town near you. And it doesn't involve trying to contort submarines out of the US Navy when they don't have enough themselves. So if we were rational beings, at least this alternative would be being looked at. Well, yes, I I have to agree. But you've made uh, an assumption there, Michael, which is that a lot of these decisions are made for rational reasons. And I think you and I both know that that is not always the case. I think B-21 is kind of dead at the moment. But, you know, if the SSN program, for whatever reason, gets into trouble in another five years' time, it's possible B-21 could be resurrected as, a, as an alternative. But I myself, I'm not going to waste too much time advocating for, for B-21 at the moment, even though perhaps in my heart of heart, I think it is a better choice for Australia. Well, I don't think many people need to advocate it. I think it is going to demonstrate by what it does that it's a real and powerful capability that would be very relevant for Australia. Anyway, Marcus, fantastic to talk with you. Thank you, Michael.